Robert Goldstone, welcome to Fritankespod. Thank you, it's great to be here. You are a professor at the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at Indiana University in Bloomington, right? That is absolutely right, and I'm also in the program in Cognitive Science. Cognitive Science, yeah, you work with Cognitive Psychology, focusing on knowledge representation and computational modeling of mental processes, right? That's it. And I know that you're working with one of my big heroes, Douglas Hofstadter. Yeah, one of my big heroes, too. That's one great. of the reasons why I am a cognitive scientist now was, I think, like yourself, reading Gerdel Escherbach when I was at the impressionable age of 18 years old. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny because I know that we are exactly equal age. You well, you are a week older than me, I believe. <laughs> older, so, right. yeah, there is that generational yeah, divide. That was a very fascinating week that you missed, I can promise. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, we read Gerda Leschebach at uh, almost the same time, actually. And uh, uh, so I really share that experience with you. Uh, tell me, what, what are you actually, if you explain more in detail what you are researching on, that's really interesting. Your work with Douglas. So, right. So um, I guess in some ways, I'm really interested in the question of how people think about sophisticated areas of reasoning and science and mathematics. And I guess I'm really interested in trying to ground this out. So in two ways, kind of, arguing that our um, sophisticated reasoning is oftentimes bridging with our oftentimes thought to be more mundane perception and action systems. Um, and I think it, it works in two ways. I think oftentimes what we think of as very sophisticated reasoning, when you scratch a little bit below the surface, turns out not to be. It turns out to be mediated by perception and action. And at the same time, I think people think of perception as being kind of low-level, brutish, um, something kind of stupid. Mm. But I'm interested in arguing that perception is actually quite sophisticated as well, and it's adaptive, and it can be adapted to what we need to do, cognitively speaking. Okay. Can, can you explain that a little bit more? What do you, how do we adapt it, do you mean? Can you give a concrete example of that? Sure. So um, um, we do a lot of work um, on mathematical cognition and how people do simple algebra problems. And we find, for example, that we adapt our perceptual system so that it becomes better coordinated with what we know is doing the right thing. Not doing the right thing in a Spike Lee sense, <laughs> but doing the right thing when it comes to what mathematical um, conventions tell us is the right thing. So we learn early on, maybe in fourth or fifth grade, that we do multiplications before we do a divisions, mm -hmm. or I know, multiplications before additions, mm -hmm. say. So if you're given a problem of what's two plus three times five, the correct answer is that you do the three times five, first coming up with 15, then you add two to yeah. come up with the answer 17. And one of the ways that we come to be able to do that when it's shown to us uh, on a screen or in paper and pencil form is by 
automatically directing our perceptual attention to the multiplication sign before the addition, addition sign. Why do we do that? Because it makes our cognition easier. So it means that our perceptual system is doing some of the heavy lifting, cognitively speaking, instead of having to memorize rules like, okay, don't forget to do the multiplication before we do the, the addition. We can just leave it, sort of offload it, we mm. can put it on the role of our perceptual system, trusting that after it's been trained, uh, it will do the right thing, and it will look at the multiplication sign first. And that will That's free fair. up our frontal executive functions yeah. in the brain so that they can do something else. One thing to notice in there is I, I said offloading, but of course it's offloading to another part of our brain, a more posterior part of the brain which is responsible for perception. But um, So I really should be thinking about different parts of our brain coordinating with each other to figure out efficient ways of doing tasks. Mm. But this, I've never thought about that example before, but as we now speak, I'm thinking, first of all, it's, of course, a human decision that the multiplication should be done before the multiplication. It's a human-invented rule, right? It is just a convention. Yeah, and, and it, if we want to change that, we have to pay, put brackets around 2 plus 3. Yeah. As a bracket, 2 plus 3, bracket, times 5. Then it means something else, right? Absolutely. Uh, but what you're saying is that we learn the rule first, and then we transfer that, transfer that rule into the perception system. That's right. Uh, and it's interesting with the example that you bring up with brackets because those, if you th visualize them, those create a nice closed group. Yeah. So it's sort of dovetailing with our visual systems. So it want, our visual system wants to treat 2 plus 3 as a single perceptual unit if there are brackets around it. And it points to one way that we get to be smarter than we ought to be evolutionarily speaking, because we have this ability to create cultural artifacts, namely mathematical notational systems, mm. that work in coordination with our perceptual systems. So we can create cultural artifacts that are adaptive to our visual systems at the same time that our visual systems can also be adapted to these artifacts. Yeah, I see. But I'm thinking something that we talked about on this conference where we are right now, what is life conference in, at Lidinga in Stockholm. We talked the other day about that certain concepts and metaphors can also uh, limit your thinking in, in different ways that is not always what you want. Uh, I'm thinking when I went to school, I learned about the atom and the model was like a solar system with the sun in the middle and the planets going around uh, and the atom is like that. And, you know, it's not at all like that. Right. Uh, and I'm thinking that, uh, uh, or, or for example, that what we talked about with Richard Dawkins, that we talk very much about purpose in evolution. We mm -hmm. say that some um, animals have long necks because the purpose is to reach to the fruits in the trees, and mm -hmm. that's not correct either. Um, have you studied that anything, the problem no. of limiting your thoughts with the concepts and metaphors we use? Absolutely. So that's huge. So um, I think um, with great 
power as provided by our models and our concepts comes great responsibility, yeah. as Spider-Man might say. And <laughs> um, it's absolutely right that whenever we have an underlying model like um, Rutherford's model of atoms as like balls rotating yeah. or, around a, a center bigger ball, um, they are going to be doing various amounts of violence to the actual natural phenomenon. Yeah. Um, and so you can always critique models from the perspective of are you getting the inferences that are correct out mm. of them? Um, so I, as a cognitive scientist, I guess I'm sort of constitutionally not able anymore to think in terms of whether a model is true or false. Mm. I'm always thinking about what are the inferences that you can get out of this model and where are those inferences likely to prove correct and incorrect when you go back to the real system to, to investigate it. So I think um, we should always be critiquing our models and seeing what other models could be around the corner to, to provide better inferences. So uh, a Newtonian model of, of physics, of how matter works, works great. And I, uh, for many scales of matter, it's doing a great job, but it doesn't do a great job at very, very small scales, very, very large scales. Mm -hmm. And so we should be bringing in the mechanisms of different models uh, at different levels, depending upon uh, where they're useful. So I think it makes perfect sense to talk about the utility of a model for a particular purpose, yeah. but not so much is this true with a capital T. This is interesting because I remember many, many years ago, I met quite a few times Alan Kay. Are you familiar with him? Sure. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he developed, uh, I think he developed the first prototype of the graphical user interface yeah. in the Xerox Park lab, uh, what we call Windows today on our computers. And I know that he called this a user illusion, which is a quite good description of what it is because it's not at all... Uh, saying how the computer actually works internally. Yeah. But it is a useful illusion uh, for what we use computers for today. But at the same time, you can definitely say that people who are good at using Windows and on a personal computer knows very much less about how the computer really works than people 30 years ago who used the computer uh, because you were sort of closer to how it actually were, is working when you used it. Do you understand what I mean? I do. And that, I think that's interesting because it's, it's, it's like the, the user illusion is on a higher abstraction level of how the computer works. Great. And it's, of course, better for the purpose of ordinary non-computer scientists to work with the computer that way. But it also limits our understanding of how a computer works. Do you see what I mean? So I do. Yes, I, I completely see what you're saying. And I guess it's all for what purposes do you need to be doing your, your activity? Mm. And so exactly. um, I think it is often a direction of technology that there are more and more layers upon layers on which technology is, is built. 
and mm. and so like modern computer programmers are very dependent on their libraries they're no longer uh, working in assembly code no, exactly. <laughs> right and and they're incredibly more efficient because of that because they can make these high level calls and construct entire databases yeah. and do database queries with just single single line commands so um, I think modern computer scientists uh, rightly feel themselves to be something of like superheroes yeah. because they feel this incredible power that they have because they can leverage on these uh, layers upon layers of of scaffolding of library packages that have dependencies on other library packages. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so when I install software, I'm amazed by looking at the the software dependencies that that software depends on, et cetera, and it can go down thousands of packages. Yeah. And it's to me it's a, a testament to the the brilliance of human minds collectively speaking, so that we can that we can create these systems, these architectures of computer dependencies that uh, that allow us to nowadays experience ourselves computationally in almost a one-for-one way in which we speak. So nowadays when I want to create a a new computational model of how I think somebody learns something, Mm. um, I'm able to kind of express it in in words do a little bit of change to make it a little bit more computerized but in a very high level language and it, it just works. That's fantastic. Uh, uh, let's talk a little bit about artificial intelligence. I know that Douglas Hofstadter, uh, who I also know personally these days, he's quite skeptic to the artificial intelligence development. Or, or rather, I would say he thinks that a lot of people overestimates what AI will be able to do mm. uh, in the near future. What is your take on that? Do you agree that that the AI will not be able to do good translations for a very long time between languages, for example, because I know Doug thinks so. Yeah, um, that's a great question. Um, I, I think my induction over the last several decades of artificial intelligence is that people are oftentimes... Um, underestimating how quickly artificial intelligence systems will take in order to do kind of specific modularized tasks like answering Jeopardy questions mm. well um, or, or um, playing chess well or mm. playing Go well. But um, I'm in agreement with Doug that um, people, I think, are, on the other hand, very likely to overestimate um, the capabilities of computers when it comes to a, a very generalized adaptive intelligence. Mm. So, And it, would you say that translating for, between languages is that kind of generalized... It, So I think it turns out that if you're interested in getting a system so that it can take um, documents that are already existing on the web that the computer has not seen before um, and translating them to to a new language, I think it's doing a very good job, Mm -hmm. actually. Um, And I think Doug himself would admit that he's surprised by how 
good the technology has been able to come in the last several uh, years. And, uh, but I think that's telling us something more about human psychology and sort of the kind of um, habitual patterns of language mm. that we oftentimes use. And if you allow some cobbling together, composing together new utterances out of some recombinations of existing utterances that it already has translations for, that it can do a, a quite good job. Um, so I think it is a matter of fact, if you look at all of the language which exists on the web, you can translate new examples of that without having what I would consider a, a generalized artificial intelligence. Hmm. I see. Um, do you think that we ever will create artificial intelligence that develop a consciousness in the sense that we normally mean, a self-reflecting machine? Do you think that will happen? Yeah. Um, I, I have difficulty with the notion of consciousness as um, a lot of people think about it. I don't think of consciousness as being this kind of unified, subjective experience. I think we as humans don't really even have that. Mm -hmm. um, I think um, sometimes it feels, uh, or parts of us feel like we do have that, but that's partly because those parts are not in contact with other parts of us who might have other opinions. <laughs> um, okay. So... That's one of those questions that I would kind of like to unask. Um, I think that um, there could easily be in in a hundred years a system where people are perfectly happy to say that this uh, uh, originally human created system or cyborg partially human partially machine created system mm. is is acting enough like we act so that we would be comfortable considering it uh, a person in a generalized sense. Mm. Okay, I see. Uh, because today there are some people who seem to really warn for the development of AI. I mean, the machines could be get get rid of humans and so on. What what do you think about those ideas? Yeah, um, we probably have more immediate concerns mm -hmm. to worry about. Okay. I I think that if we're worried about ethical challenges of artificial intelligence, they are already upon us. And we should maybe be prioritizing thinking about how we want to build in the decision-making in automated driving systems before we worry about being snuffed out by, by a, a superintelligence. Um, I mean, I like to think that um, through the years and evolution of culture that we will eventually be in a position where my exact use of we in this sentence will be taken to be broadly encompassing mm -hmm. us and other things that have different uh, histories of creation. Okay, I see what you mean. What, what should we worry about on the more short-term level right now, would you say? 
So, so going back to the automated driving system mm. example, I think we really need to worry about um, these decisions that are being programmed um, without a lot of external check mm. to determine, for example, whether this car is going to veer in one direction or another direction, thereby potentially uh, putting the life of a pedestrian at risk versus the life of the, the driver of the car. Yeah. Um, and I think we have to own up to the fact that uh, the incentive structure for Tesla may not be the same incentive structure as for for. Um, governments or for um, society as a whole or the mm. driver of the car. So we have to have a way of having openness in these algorithms to be able to look at their decision making to be able to determine if they're acting in, in ways that we we view as moral. You mean, for example, the if should the car drive over a whole family walking uh, uh, on the side of the street, or should it crash into a into a wall and kill the passenger? You, that's what the kind yeah. of dilemmas you mean. Yeah. Yeah. And from a utilitarian perspective, it's better to crash the wall if you have only one passenger. Otherwise, you will kill a whole family, for example. But it's not maybe the the best alternative for the passenger, obviously. So that's right. the kind yeah, of and dilemmas. It might not be the best alternative for. Tesla, if they're <laughs> building the AI and they want to sell a lot of these vehicles. Yeah, exactly. No, exactly. That's true. So how should we how should we regulate that? Should it be some kind of global regulations commission or how how should it be done, do you think? So I mean one general principle would be to require some openness for the the AI algorithms and what is in increasingly apparent is going to be important is openness in the the training data which is used to train these algorithms because we know that um, the end behavior of these systems is oftentimes completely unanticipatable by the the programmers of the algorithms in particular because many of them are using machine learning techniques where yes you are programming the computer but you're programming the computer to learn so that you're no longer able to to carefully uh, specify predict what its behavior is going to be. So I think we need to um, ensure that the systems that are going to be playing important roles in our lives are critiquable, that people, uh, artificial intelligence experts, and potentially policymakers have access to the underlying algorithm and the underlying training data sets that are used for training to, to be able to say is this the kind of algorithm that we want? I see. What um, you mean. There's various ways that biases can be swept in under the rug for these algorithms, um, mm -hmm. and we want to make sure that um, we're not um, uh, training the systems on garbage data that is going to end up. Uh, having uh, resulting algorithms that show racial profiling, for example. Yeah, yeah that's right. Um, another ethical issue. Do you think that we will come to a situation where people 
start to get feelings for robots or machines and and to to argue that they should have some kind of robotic rights uh, we should not treat them badly and things like that will that happen you think yeah i think i i hope that it would happen if there's cognitively rich emotionally rich sophisticated um machines coming down the pike mm. i hope that present-day humanity made up of homo sapiens is enlightened enough so that we will mm. acknowledge that rights have to be given. Um, I, th I think that there is potentially a danger that we think that there is just a single decision that we have to make, that this is a person or that this is not a person when looking at this uh, machine intelligence where I, I think it should be more the the question for what purposes mm. for for what purposes do we want to give the the computer this kind of right or this kind of consideration and we should probably be going through that effort for chimpanzees as well mm. and it may be that um according to some of these decisions a chimpanzee would be closer to a human than artificial intelligence but for other purposes it could be the other way around so yeah. i think we have to first ask ourselves as a society um, what are the tasks? What what hangs in the balance before we think about what is the the uh, dividing line? Or I hope we're sophisticated enough to think in terms of dividing lines mm. for different purposes. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean. Would you say that artificial intelligence has had a sort of uh, research revolution the last four, four, five, six years? Or yeah, absolutely. If yeah. That's the case. Yeah, I, I think that it has just been amazing to see um, the renaissance of of deep learning. You know, so yeah. you and I were trained in neural networks when we were high school, college students, and for a long times there were strong criticisms about uh, what would be within the the information processing capacity of neural networks. Um, and it was viewed as a dead end by many in the artificial mm -hmm. intelligence community. And now um, it's the big thing. And now it's the big thing. And and it mm. was really because it was competing favorably on objective tests for how good can you categorize this visual image and say is this a german shepherd or is this a doberman pincher mm. and so the the current systems that do this better than any other systems are interestingly neural networks with mm. far far more layers of information transmission than the the neural networks of your slightly different algorithms much bigger training sets yeah. you know millions of images from databases are fed into these systems but but essentially they're very similar algorithms to to the algorithms that were originally being proposed in the the 1980s um and to me it's exciting it's it's of course very evocative to me because some of the processing principles of these neural networks um i think do have deep resonances to human brains and mm -hmm. how human brains think mm. and they are distributed systems so mm. they really are um, working like our brains to to learn not 
in a one-at-a-time, step-by-step basis, but through the massive parallel interactions between millions of neurons, where mm. each of the neurons is is only doing a very simple thing. It's either turning on or turning off other neurons mm. to various uh, degrees. Mm. And despite that, despite that all neurons are doing is turning on and off other neurons, they give rise to everything we know of by way of um, coherent, sequential thought, our categories, our loves, mm. our fears, it all comes down to that. And so that, that is really the, the fundamental underpinning of, of modern deep learning, too. Very, very interesting. We'll see what the future will hold for us. Uh, thank you very much, Robert Goldstone, to be in our podcast. It's my pleasure. Mm-hmm.